This morning, I'm actually going to focus on the passage that Mark read from the book of Acts, the second chapter, where Luke describes the vision of the early church, when uh, the church born at Pentecost. And he said they met constantly to bear, uh, to hear the apostles teach and to share the common life and to break bread and to pray. And a sense of awe was felt by everyone. And many portents and signs were brought about through the apostles and all the believers agreed to hold everything in common and they began to sell their property and their possessions and distribute to everyone according to his or her need. One and all, they kept up their daily attendance at the temple. And breaking bread in their homes, they shared their meals with unaffected joy as they praised God and enjoyed the favor of the whole people. And day by day, the Lord added new converts to their number. That is Luke's vision of a spirit-filled church. And at first, I think it just sounds lovely. You know, a church where everybody agrees all the time and a church where every one of us is filled with awe and unaffected joy and a church awash in signs and portents that are brought forth through each one of us and a church with lots of fellowship and lots of meals and lots of new members and everyone in the community just loves us. I mean, the whole world just thinks we're fabulous. That's the vision that has inspired a lot of wannabe utopian cults over the years. Josephus, who's a first century uh, Jewish um, historian, describes a cult like that in his own day. It happens to be a Jewish cult called the Essenes. The Essenes are known for a library of scrolls that they hid in the caves in Qumran, and which we discovered back in the, I think it was late 40s, early 50s. Josephus writes about the Essenes. He says they are so very communal as to earn our admiration. There is no one to be found among them who has more property than another, for they have a law that those who come to join them must let whatever they have be common to the whole order, so that among them all there is no appearance of either poverty or excessive wealth. Everyone's possessions are intermingled with every other's possessions, as if they were all brothers with a single patrimony. They have no one city, but dwell. many of them dwell in many cities. And if any of the sect arrive from elsewhere, all is made available to them as if it were their own. And they go to those they have never seen before as if long acquaintances. Accordingly, in every city, there is one appointed specifically to take care of strangers and provide them with garments and other necessities. That sounds a lot like Luke's description of the early church in Acts. It's a model that has been employed by religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church by priests and nuns who, who have taken vows of poverty and service in common life. And if you talk to the people who commit to such a life, you will find out that it isn't easy and there's always a lot of strife and there are jealousies and squabbles and breakdowns in community. But Luke gives us a vision of the church at its best. 
It's a vision meant to inspire us, a, a vision that calls us to our own awe and bliss. In fact, every new church, I think, does start up kind of in a frenzy of euphoric bliss. Everybody gets together and, wow, we're starting a church and isn't this going to be great? But then staying in community for the long haul takes a lot of work and commitment. Now, an independent-minded Americans who value self-reliance, I think Luke's idea of common property and a common savings account sounds just plain foolish. We don't mind sharing and we don't mind giving to people in need and we certainly don't mind giving away stuff we don't want, but surely we might say Luke does not expect us to become communists. In the next chapter of Acts, we're going to see some of this start to unravel a couple who are supposed to sell their property and give the proceeds to the community, hold back some of the cash on the property sale, and they wind up dying as a result. Early Christians did in fact keep their own homes and their properties, and we can see that in the early letters of the Apostle Paul as he writes to Christian communities being birthed all over the ancient world. The Greek-speaking Christians in a couple of chapters are going to start complaining that their widows are being discriminated against and that the Hebrew-speaking widows are getting better rations. So the vision, as beautiful as it was, has proven difficult. Frankly, as an introvert, there are a lot of parts of this early church fellowship experience that sound right, downright scary to me. Like, I love all of y'all, but there are limits. When I was looking for a seminary to attend and I was researching different ones before I settled on the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, um, I looked at a brochure from Wartburg Seminary in the Midwest here and it was focused on community and all they were doing to kind of foster this Lucan vision of the early church. And one of the requirements was that all of the students and their families were required to eat a common meal together every single night. And I decided right then and there that Wartburg was not for me. Still, there it is, right in scripture, a picture of this enthusiastic and rapidly expanding early church. Luke says they went to the temple to worship God every single day, all of them together. Now, I don't know, it seems to me that we often like to skip church. Now we're starting to appreciate it a little bit more. Now we would really like to be able to go to the sanctuary and gather together, and we miss being able to hug one another and share the peace, and we miss being able to sing together and, and all of those wonderful things and coffee fellowship. They listened, Luke says, to preaching, and they studied the scriptures together daily. They prayed together daily. They broke bread and they had the Lord's Supper every single day. And I know people who gripe about having to have it once a week. Can you imagine every day? And then they had their, their own family meals and they invited people to their tables and then they had community fellowship meals, which is hard on the kitchen and the cleanup crew if you have to do it every day. And they sold and shared their stuff for the benefit of all the members of the kingdom. And they had this sense of awe and excitement and possibility. 
And we're told day by day, the Lord added to their numbers because something about their life together made them stand out. People noticed, I think, the awe and the caring and the trust and the unaffected joy that they brought and their mutual love for one another. Community like that takes a lot of grace. It takes a huge capacity for humility and for forgiveness. It takes huge resilience. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been poured into our hearts, a spirit that links us and gives us a greater capacity for cooperation and the, empowers us to be able to live in love with one another. That is our inheritance, Jesus told us. It's kind of like the way trees live in community. I read an article, What Good is a Tree? in the Reader's Digest. I learned some interesting things. Like when the roots of trees touch one another, there is a substance present that reduces the competition among the trees. And this substance is actually, when the roots touch, it's a fungus. In fact, this unknown fungus helps link the roots of all these different trees, even dissimilar species, get linked together by the fungus so that a whole forest can get linked together in this way. And if one tree has access to water, and if another tree has access to nutrients, and a third, for example, has access to sunlight, well, the trees can actually share these things with one another. We have a substance that does the same thing for us, the Spirit of the Lord. There is a story that has long circulated that I think beautifully describes the power that we have been given in Christ to make life better. It's a story so old it could, it could be a fairy tale almost, but it goes like this. There was a war in Eastern Europe, and when the war was over, a soldier trudged towards home, and he approached a town as another soldier was leaving that town, and he asked, have you got anything to eat? And the other soldier said to him, not a thing. And in addition, the town folks have nothing. The war hit them really hard. And so don't even bother wasting your time. You can't even get water out. You can't get water out of a stone. And so the two soldiers parted ways and the first soldier walked on towards the town. Bam, he trips and he falls in the road there. And when he looks up to see what he's stumbled on, he finds a rock there that's buried in the path, a round stone. And he didn't know what he might do with it, but he picks up this round stone and he tucks it into his knapsack. In town, he waves to all these people, but nobody waves back. And where, wherever he asked people for food, the people offered excuses and they would say, yeah, we've had a poor harvest. Not nearly enough for my own family. Sorry, I gotta keep some for seed. Too many mouths to feed, can't spare it. Finally, the hungry soldier stops under a tree in the town square. He prayed that he at, 
that he might at least dream of a delicious meal. And he lay his head down on his knapsack and the rock in there kind of made a hard pillow. And he fell asleep and he dreamed of this wonderful, amazing soup and people laughing and dancing and enjoying it together. Well, when the soldier awoke, he called together the town's people and announced that if someone would bring him a cauldron of water, he would make this specialty that he was known for far and wide that he called stone soup. Despite a lot of odd looks from the people and some skepticism and grumbling, someone went and got a kettle of water. And when the pot boiled, the soldier took the stone out of his knapsack and he raised it over his head and he prayed and he plopped the stone down into the water. A few minutes later, he took out a spoon and he sipped and he tasted the water. And he said, my, this is delicious. This is the best stone soup I have ever made. Now, if only I had a couple of cabbages, it'd give it a much richer flavor. And a woman ran home and she returned with two cabbages and he chopped them up and put them into the pot. A little while later, he took out his spoon and he tasted the soup again from the cauldron. And he sipped it up. Oh, so good. Amazing. A couple of carrots and, you know, and some milk would make this fit for a nobleman, he said. So a farmer sent his son home to fetch some milk and some carrots. And when he came back to, him, to them, uh, into the soup, the milk and the carrots went. And so it went. And each time the soldier tasted the soup, he mentioned an ingredient, salt, pepper, onions, beef, and the ingredient would appear and he would place it into the cauldron until finally the aroma of the stone soup had everybody's mouths watering. Finally, the time came to serve the soup up and the townspeople set up tables and they set up chairs and wine and bread appeared on the tables and fiddlers began to play and everyone danced and they ate the delicious soup together. And the town came alive in ways that it hadn't in years and laughter rang out like church bells. And when the time came to leave, the soldier presented the stone to the townspeople, suggesting that they use it once a month the way they had just done. And then he waved and he got back onto the main road. Before long, he ran into the soldier that he had met earlier, the one he had met when he was first coming into town. And the other soldier said, see, a waste of time, right? Didn't I tell you, you can't get water out of a stone? To which the first soldier simply smiled and said, water, you expect too little, my friend. Not only water from a stone, but a great soup and warm fellowship. We also have a stone. It's the spirit of the living Christ. Our rock is Jesus. Amen. We are one in
the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will Confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen.
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, God from